Just King Things is a podcast about reading the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. This episode on the 1977 novel Rage has content warnings for gun violence and school shootings, physical assault, racism, domestic violence, bullying, alcoholism and drug use, facial mutilation and disfigurement, psychological manipulation and torture, and unsafe sexual practices. Hi, jerks. Welcome to Blabbing About Bachman, the podcast where we talk about the books of Richard Bachman. I'm Jonathan Foghat, and with me is uh, Thomas 38 Special. Uh, they call me Tom Special. Tom Special. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, no. Okay, just kidding. It's just King Things. Uh, I'm Michael, and with me is Cameron. That's true. Why did why did you begin this way, Michael? I'm <laughs> speaking to you. This is me speaking to you with incredulity. You mm. get it. You get it's like well, the, it, it's like the thing I normally do, but there's no onomatopoeia yeah. because this is just a book of people talking to one another, and so <laughs> I can't do any onomatopoeia. Yeah. Uh, so I I opened with uh, a joke quote-unquote, because today we are talking about Rage, uh, the 1997 novel that Stephen King published under his pseudonym Richard Bachman. Or uh, 1977 novel. Oh, okay, yes. Uh, (laughs) But out of print in 1997. Yes, so it it had a, a nice round number to exist in the world before Stephen King let it die. Uh, with good reason. And we'll talk about that. It's like uh, if this very year, the creators of Baldur's Gate 2 decided, hey, we're getting rid of this bad boy. We're going to obliterate this thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, well, presumably that would be because like it's uh, encouraging too many dragons, I guess. Or genies? Ju- I don't know. Yeah, way too many genies and dragons. There's like a whole fallen religion that's gotten going. Um, this is a bad bit. This is a huge mistake. So I should never. Yeah. So we are talking to give you an idea of how little we want to discuss this book. We are talking about a video game. Uh, yeah. So 1977 rage, Stephen King publishes the book, Richard Bachman. He wrote this in high school. He, he, Uh, he did. Um, well, just to fill out your joke too from earlier. Right. Because I detracted uh from it immediately by trying to talk about literally anything else. And I apologize uh-huh. to the, the, the listener, the dear listener for this. <laughs> uh, Richard Bachman is the pseudonym of Stephen King. Uh-huh. Where he published at least one terrible novel. Mm-hmm. And, and we learned about this because I didn't know. You probably knew, Michael. But I, I didn't really know what the Bachman deal was. Why did Stephen King, he's banging out these hot cool novels right he's 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 on on the the you know the typewriter he's he's got mm-hmm. fire coming off of his mm-hmm. fingertips mm-hmm. they're flying off 
like, you know, hot sheets of metal are going everywhere. There's stuff getting in everybody's eyes. It's awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just banger <laughs> after like, banger. Steve, you have to stop. Exactly. Tabitha says, oh, my God, Stephen, you, I, the house is burning down. You have to stop. It's hot metal <laughs> shooting everywhere. And he says, I can't. And I need to go rescue a novel that I wrote in high school from a trunk in the closet to publish this bad boy. And you, listener, like me, might think, what the fuck? Why did he do that? <laughs> uh, and Michael probably has an answer for us. Do I? Uh, that's I it's know. a it's so so Stephen King uh, comes up uh, with the Richard Bachman idea, and I'm, I'm I'm drawing here from an essay that I I think we've both read by this mm-hmm. point. Uh, mm-hmm. Why I was Bachman, uh, which gets published at the so after Stephen King publishes this first book as Richard Bachman, he publishes a couple more. Uh, three more, actually, until it is found out that it is a pseudonym for Stephen King, and uh, then all of the books get published together as the Bachman books. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The reason Bachman comes about, according to an essay that King publishes in, in the Bachman books called Why I Was Bachman, uh, is that Stephen King wonders to himself, you know, he's got three novels out, he's he's doing pretty well, he's on his way to Hollywood, uh, and he thinks to himself, well, was that success me or was it just random chance? And this is this is at least one of the rationales for this that he mm-hmm. provides in, in the essay. And so he decides he is going to start publishing other novels uh, that he had written because and that we've talked about this in previous episodes. He's written, you know, several manuscripts uh, before he gets Carrie published. Uh, but he thinks, you know, I'll take some of these older books that are kind of in a slightly different tone because they they uh, come about before the Stephen King brand really gels. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll publish them under another name and we'll see how well they do. They don't do well. <laughs> yeah, he uh, says uh, that, well, what's really funny is he's like, they did pretty respectably. Um, and I guess they did. Like, I, I, I think he says that, uh, I think he says Rage sold 50,000 copies. Which is that's, that's that, more copies than I've sold of anything. That's 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 true. Uh, does he say that in the essay? That sounds like an awful lot. I think so. I think he does say it. Um, I'm pretty sure. But in any case, they they don't sell the millions of copies that his other books sell. Right. No. His uh, the final Bachman book published before the the pseudonym is is let out. It sells twenty eight thousand copies in hardcover. Mm. Uh, so it's not. You know, he says uh, 28,000 copies isn't a lot. It's certainly not in bestseller territory, but it's 4,000 copies more than my book Night Shift sold in 1978. Oh, I don't know why I thought that was 50,000. But yeah, so 28,000 copies, that's, I guess, respectable. Um, But yeah, it's not the literal order of magnitude more than (laughs) all of his other books have sold. Well, it seems like, Michael, uh, he's answered his own question. Mm Mm-hmm. It might have been random chance. Yeah, it might have been. It might have been just kind of chance that Stephen King is the right person in the right place at the right time. And uh, it's all golden from there because, yeah, the Bachman books don't do particularly well. And frankly, I'm surprised that there were any Bachman books after the first one because Rage is is really, really bad. As already alluded to, uh, King wrote this in high school. It was written uh, between his junior and senior year of high school. And so when he thinks, 
I'm going to do this experiment to see, you know, whether it was is luck or whatever. Uh, he seems to choose what is possibly like just the, just the worst book he could have chosen to try to do this with because uh and we, we've already alluded to like the closet or the trunk and this is a thing that king talks about a lot of the a lot in his his kind of work on writing his trunk novels which are the manuscripts that get written but you don't think can be sold or you know can't be sold or you think needs some something else needs to happen before they're really in in working order or you're just saving them for later saving them for a rainy day perhaps uh, you know, so, so this, the, the, the motif of the trunk novel recurs again and again for King. Uh, and you know, it's, it's a true thing. I have written some stuff. Uh, I have some novel manuscripts in my trunk and indeed one of them was written, uh, between my junior and senior year of high school. And let me tell you, if I became a famous author fairly soon, right, if this just happened to me and I, I could do this kind of little gambit, I've looked back at that that manuscript from high school uh, and like, that's not the one that I would choose. I would not look at myself as a writer in high school and be like, ah, oh, that's the novel that I want to publish. That's the one that I want everyone to see. But apparently Stephen King does. And so we get rage. Yeah, and it's of the Bachman books, and in my opinion at least, it's the worst one by like a wide margin. That That's what's surprising, right? Is that the Bachman books on the whole aren't like bad. Like, you might get that impression if you've never read any Stephen King that, that like, we're just setting you up for all the Bachman books to just be crap from here on out. Uh, but there there is some pretty workable stuff in the Bachman books, to my memory. But this first one uh, is just... I'm Here's the one-sentence summary. What if Holden Caulfield did a school shooting? Yeah, we don't even need five sentences. <laughs> yeah, that that's the whole thing. It's it's. Uh, you know what? I will say this. Let me give Steve some credit where credit's due. Uh, graciously, it's it's very short. <laughs> Something in its favor. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, how else do we want to? What else do we want to talk about up front before we talk about the book itself? Because I think it's clear, like our feelings about the book, and until yeah. we get into specifics, not that there's a whole lot of them. Um, like, what do we want to have here at the, at the top? I think that was, oh, well, maybe we should talk about, uh, the other side of it, right? So we already have the Wiles Bachman essay. You can read that. You can find that online there. Stephen King, when he took this novel out of print in what you said, 97. Yeah, it's 97. Um, when he took the novel out of print, he, uh, later, I don't know, 10 years later, something like that. Maybe even later, mm -hmm. I, at some point, wrote an essay called Guns. Oh, yes, yes. Um, uh, this but, 2013 is Guns. Gotcha. Okay. So so in 2013, releases a Kindle single. Remember those? Remember Kindle singles mm -hmm. and how they were going to change the universe? Do you remember when Hart Negri wrote a Kindle single? <laughs> I do. <laughs> oh, King, Hart, Negri, Tingle. <laughs> all all the, the greats, but... Um, uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, so he writes this essay called Guns that is kind of about the logic of it. And basically what Stephen King tells us is that um, he was uncomfortable. with He, he describes uh, rage as gasoline on a fire. 
mm-hmm. basically says, uh, I don't think that books cause people to do school shootings. And he kind of walks us through several examples where there were school shootings or situations that happened that are similar to rage in which um, uh, the the person had either had the book in their possession or had obviously read the book or quoted the book, things like that. And so he says, mm-hmm. now look, I don't think my book caused any kind of school shooting scenario, but I think that it probably mm-hmm. uh, d- didn't help anything. <laughs> and he mm-hmm. says, much like a kid, if you know a kid uh, uh, has a propensity for lighting fires, you don't leave them alone with... Uh, you know, matches and some gasoline. I just thought it was better to not mm-hmm. have the book out there. And so, you know, he mm-hmm. removed it from print. Um, and then he uses that as a way of like proposing specific gun legislation, which I think is, um, you know, uh, I, I, as the producer for The Shining a TV series said, master storyteller. <laughs> I don't think he's a master um, political uh, solution generator by any means. Um, but but th- so there's kind of some rationale in that guns essay if you're looking for that. Is there anything that stuck out in that to you, Michael? Largely, uh, the the guns essay, which is you know 2013, so it's the year after uh, the Newtown shooting, um, uh, and I think that is kind of you know when King really starts thinking about making his opinions on this known, uh, because I think something like mm-hmm. four or five cases can be uh in to greater and lesser degrees um four or five cases of of like a school shooting can be connected to rage uh but king finally comes around uh in 2013 and says okay you know it's it's time to, to to say something about this and uh i will say what is weird about reading the guns essay is just how quaint it it feels seven years mm-hmm. ago uh that mm-hmm. any of these ideas like he he talks about gun control legislation as a thing he thinks is going to pass in the next couple of years which is not really about stephen king right i think that's more just like thinking about where does this book uh sit in kind of you know american culture and not even just this book but stephen king and you know this nightmare train that is american society that we're all writing um you know, like, what is, what is that? You know, like, think about that. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I have to read this. I'm so sorry. I have to read this. <laughs> Go ahead. So this is a thing that Stephen King writes in this essay. Uh, when this is, you know, after he talks about how he doesn't believe, you know, uh, that, that guns or not guns, um, but that, uh, books specifically are what is going to turn people into school shooters and so on. Um, I also don't believe the NRA's assertion articulated by Mr. LaPierre each time there's another mass murder by gun in a school or a shopping mall that America's so-called, quote, culture of violence plays a significant role in kid-on-kid school shootings. That this idea has gained even a shred of acceptance simply proves what George Orwell knew when he wrote 1984. If you say a thing often enough, it will be accepted as truth. Let me be frank. The idea that America exists in a culture of violence is bullshit. What America exists in is a culture of Kardashian. Steve. Come on, my man. <laughs> um, and, and to sort of unpack a little bit what he's getting at there, when he says that America doesn't exist in a culture of violence, uh, I, I don't necessarily agree with him, but what he's saying is he says things like, you know, uh, 
people really like superhero movies, and largely speaking, uh, superheroes themselves don't use guns, right? They, they use other means of violence uh, that are not sort of, like, graphic. Uh, and he also talks about, like, you know, watching uh, old, old westerns where... Uh, death was all just a matter of like pantomiming, right? It wasn't, mm -hmm. um, it wasn't like a gritty revisionist Western where, where you see the blood and like broken bones and stuff. So this is, this is how King is conceptualizing violence in this essay. But just what really gets me is, is like him totally channeling the inner drill of America does not exist in a, a, a culture of violence. We exist in a culture of Kardashian. Yeah. I just, Steve, you're wrong, bud. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you've missed the mark on this one, unfortunately. Um, that he also, uh, in, in this essay, says, um, gosh, there was something else that really stuck out to me, too. Uh, there was this mandatory minimum sentencing and another thing that I thought was super weird. Um, gosh, I'm blanking on it now. Oh, well. You can uh, this I, out. I was going to say, is it the part where he says uh, if he could control the world, he would have all of the people who watch MSNBC watch Fox News for a year and all the people who watch Fox News for a year watch MSNBC and then that will yes. make everyone centrists? Yes, 100%. It's when, it's when Stephen King, uh, we didn't have the language for this at the time, so, so, so thank you now uh, for you know, the ensuing seven years, now we can say that Stephen King is heroically defending the radical center. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that really what everyone needs to realize is that everyone else is a little bit wrong. Mm -hmm. um, that might be a sufficient politics when you are literally in the 1%. <laughs> That's something that maybe we have to remember, right? That's, that, so I think it's useful for us to think about that here when we were talking about rage from 1977, which we still have not talked about 20 minutes in because we do not want to talk about this novel. But mm -hmm. uh, Stephen King is someone who emerges from working class, you know, straight up blue collar rural Maine or mm -hmm. pseudo rural Maine, right? suburban Maine. Right. And he calls that out in the essay. Right. He says he grew up red state. Exactly. Um, but who in, you know, from from being in his mid 20s to his mid 30s went from being a working class dude who really had to struggle to get there. Right. Mm -hmm. to being the most highly paid author in America, and maybe the world, actually, mm -hmm. right, at that point. I mean, there is nothing like Stephen King until J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter come along, right? Yeah, yeah, as far as scale. I mean, you know, even Tom Clancy, I think, is not there, right, even though it's mm -hmm. close. Um, but but even, even saying those three names, right, Tom Clancy, J.K. Rowling, and Stephen King, right, like you get a sense that this is empire building, uh, you know, mm -hmm. just a massive, and he's got this, the, the entire publishing industry kind of pushing his, his deal, which is all to say that, you know, he, I think even here in 2013, doesn't realize how far away from like the reality of American politics he is and the American situation. He's not working class Stephen King, and he hasn't been at this point for longer than I have been alive. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So um, I think that that that's worth remembering here about good good old Stephen King, and I think as we you know get through this show, we're going to see more and more of of places where maybe Steve is not exactly connected up with uh, everyone else on some issues, um, mm -hmm. especially in the eighties. We're going to see some stuff, but I, I think we're going to have to bite the bullet here, Michael. <sighs> we're going to have to talk about it. So, mm -hmm. um, what's this kid's name? Charlie, Charlie Decker, Charlie Decker. 
um, uh, you know, obviously Deckard Cain's son. Um, but Charlie Decker. <laughs> yeah. This is Diablo 4. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he does say stay a while and listen. That's what the whole book's about. <laughs> oh, gosh. But so he basically has gotten in trouble recently for beating a teacher with a pipe wrench. Mm-hmm. And they let him come back to school. Great. It's, it's the 70s, I guess. They let him come back to school, yeah. and he walks into, I think, an algebra class and then executes his teacher and then holds the uh-huh. class hostage. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then they talk to each other until the end of the novel when he is decommissioned and then goes to um, an institution. And that is... Like, in terms of things that happen in this novel, like, that is it. I mean, there there are sort of, like, small incidental things, uh, but it, it is not too much of a overstatement, I think, to say that this novel is essentially plotless. Yeah, it's a uh, a locked room play, basically. Yeah, that's a great uh, way of putting it. Just written out into novel form. Right, exactly, because the um, the meat or the drama of the situation uh, we are we are supposed to understand. Right, this is what this is what I think the implied reader of the novel is supposed to enjoy is that once uh, Charlie has held his class hostage, uh, he basic like they basically just talk to each other for the next four hours or however long he has them trapped in in the classroom, uh, and. This is one of the other things that's so weird is that for a book about a school shooting, uh, this not only like we coming here, coming, coming to this book so many decades later when school shootings mean something very specific, right? There is a script to them uh, or there are like tendencies to them that we are so, you know, deeply and unfortunately familiar with. Uh, it is just wild how distant the situation in this book is from like what a school shooting actually is um but then this also has this weird effect where like it didn't even really have to be about a school shooting because the students don't even react no they're notoriously resilient to it (laughs) (laughs) yep there's a whole big cast of characters here michael Mm -hmm. there's uh several girls and several boys (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there is, uh, you know, I, the one I can remember, I can remember two. Um, uh-huh. and, and I, I say this, I read this book yesterday, so, <laughs> you know, that's, there's, uh, you know, I think that says something about kind of the memorability of the thing, but there's Ted. Yes. And then there is, uh, the other, his girlfriend, what's her name? Uh, is it Sandra? Sandra. Absolutely. Um, and those are the two characters that I like know and am interested in, but there are a couple others. There's Irma. There is the one black character in the whole thing who exists only to tell Charlie that he's cool. Uh Uh-huh. Do you want to talk about that? Let's talk about that character really quick. Um, okay. I'm trying to find the page where he shows up. Does he get to talk? Uh, he does later because he literally talks in jive. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, he has like one line toward the end of the book. So, so Stephen King, um, has written this character, um, Charlie that we've been, Charlie Decker that we've been talking about this like main character who takes his class hostage when he's being like a real scamp, 
or like being real mischievous or something. I don't really understand why this shows up, but he talks in um, like the way that black people sound in movies in the 1940s. Yeah, it's it's kind of a like a weird minstrel thing. Yes, 100. I just could not pull that word for whatever reason. But yeah, it's like it's minstrel yeah. minstrel speak 100 percent. And mm-hmm. so the first thing I knew about this novel, I mean, I read this novel way back and haven't read it, read it since then. But um, you brought this up to me, you know, when we were talking mm-hmm. and lo and behold, in the novel, he does that this kind of like really racist speech. And there is mm-hmm. one black character in the novel who then exists only to tell him that he's being funny. It's so what the situation is by this point, Charlie has taken over the taken over the classroom. He's killed the teacher. Um, Also, I think we should clarify this is written in the first person. This is a first person narrative, and it's a first uh, for for that in the terms of what we've talked about on this show so far. So it's all written from Charlie's point of view and Charlie's perspective. That is not to say that, like, we're not supposed to trust Charlie. I don't think that's the game that King is playing here. I'm just saying, like, this is how this novel works. Uh, Charlie Mm -hmm. is talking to someone on the intercom. It's either, like, the school counselor or it might be one of the police by this point. Uh, But Mm -hmm. in order to show, like, (sighs) how put upon he is uh, being a a hostage taker or something, um, he adopts this minstrel voice and says a bunch of things. And then uh, the line is something like, and I can't even remember the character's name. That guy who we have never heard about before, right? He has never been brought up. He has never been discussed. It's just like that guy laughed. Yeah. Right. Just to show that like, it is okay for this character to do some like racist stuff because I've invented a black man who thinks that it's funny. Exactly. Um, and that's the vibe of this whole novel. If, if I were to say, you know, what, what is one thing that sums up everything going on here? I think it would be that. Mm-hmm. Um, because the whole thing fil- it has this vibe of like weird wish fulfillment. And Stephen King kind of mm-hmm. says as much in the Guns essay, right? He basically says that he felt weird about pulling it from publication because there's something truthful about it. And he doesn't want to cover over the truth. Um, yeah. I don't know what is truthful. I mean, I understand what I think what he means is that Charlie is an outsider. Um, he doesn't he, he specifically wants to punish the um, kind of popular and cool people. And also in high school, there's this kind of, um, uh, you know, everyone is keeping secrets and everyone's kind of being a jerk to one another. And if we could just dispense with that and be honest with one another, then we would probably have a better life. You know, I think that's part of what he's saying there, too. Um, It's Mm -hmm. hard to buy that argument or it's hard to take that seriously or think that that, you know, validates rage because he does it so much better in Carrie. Yeah. You know, Carrie is like the better version of this novel in a lot of ways. It gets at all the same issues and ideas, but in a, I think, much more charitable and much less cruel and kind of gross way. Right. That sort of speaks back to what I was saying, where like this book is like, despite being about a school shooting is not really about a school shooting, right? It is about a fantasy of a school shooting. And that's really what's gross about it. Uh, And like, if 
like this novel would be substantially improved. It still wouldn't be good, but it would be, you know, improved and also would not have to change much if Charlie was telekinetic and he just used his telekinesis to like lift the classroom into the sky so none of the adults could get to it because that's essentially what happens. Yeah, or just pulled a straight up carry and locked all the doors, you know, <laughs> like, you know, at the end of carry, a hundred percent. You're you're right. Yeah, there, there's a little bit. And so, what's interesting to me about that, I guess, is that in the guns essay, King is so careful to like distinguish Iron Man shooting people with like phasers from shooting uh -huh. them with guns, right? When everyone who's ever seen those movies knows there's no distinction there, right? The mm -hmm. what is occurring is the same kind of violence. It's just abstracted. Uh, it's clearly metaphorical or, or it stands in for a, a very familiar type of violence, right? Of, of of powerful individuals doing things to other people. Iron Man works the same way in a Marvel movie as any given Michael Bay protagonist works in a Michael Bay film, right? They have the same structural position. And so, you mm -hmm. know, uh, there, there's a for, for him to draw such a, a strong distinction there. In this case, in Rage, there is not a strong distinction. You know, there's no real reason that gun violence is different from something else. It would just make it more palatable um, and kind of, mm -hmm. you know, more abstracted maybe feels better in some way, but the violence is the same. So I don't know. I think that if uh, if fantasy and science fiction work in the way that Stephen King want them to, then 100% Charlie should have been telekinetic or, <laughs> you know, have fire powers or whatever the hell. But the whole thing kind of, I guess, moves point by point of Charlie, you know, talking to the police, like you said, talking to the principal over the intercom, and then like kind of cajoling these students into like telling stories about their life. Mm -hmm. um, are there any of those that stuck out to you? I only really have one, I guess, that I think is particularly interesting. Um, well, I mean, so... I would say sort of stepping back, like structurally, I think there is something interesting in, in the, in the mold of like the locked room play, right? This idea mm -hmm. that this is not so much a story as it is a chance to get like several little stories about people and their lives. You know, I just wish that most of them were like better told or worth hearing. Um, I remember like, for instance, uh, Pigpen, right? There's the kid that they call Pigpen because mm -hmm. he is always dirty and wears kind of uh, old clothes, right? And I can't remember exactly how Charlie ends up getting Pigpen to start talking, but of course, uh, what Pigpen starts sort of like letting us. And the other thing that Charlie knows uh, is that Pigpen, uh, his mom is super involved with all of like the school events and the PTA and so on and so forth. Uh, and there's this kind of obvious disjunction from for the outside observer, for the other high school students of like the mom who is so visible and so involved. And then uh, this kid who is dirty and has crappy clothes. And he always uses like the cheapest, the cheapest pencils you can buy from, from the mm -hmm. local store. Right. And Pigpen talks about how when his mom, uh, basically, he, he he ends up confessing to the class, like, my mom doesn't really take care of us, right? My mom, like, does all of this stuff. But when she's at home, she is, like, scrimping and saving, and she's using all of these proceeds to, like, enter sweepstakes and contests. And it's, like, almost a... Uh, uh, 
a, a mania for her, right? It's like a compulsion or there's something pathologic about it. Uh, but this means that, you know, he has to wear old clothes and have the cheapest pencils and so on and so forth. So I think the intent, right, is like, oh, we're all going to kind of become humanized. Unfortunately, this is a novel that was written by a 17-year-old and, uh, you know, the the way that you conceptualize humans and human complexity uh, isn't great when you're 17, I think. Yeah, not at all. And and what's even weirder about it to me is that in, again, so I keep bringing it up, but, but it is good context. In the Guns essay, uh, he says he rewrote the novel. Yeah. You know, he like took it and rewrote it. And I don't, that cannot be true. Well, <laughs> there's, there's no way there, there is some small way in which it is true. It has to be true because Charlie references the exorcist, which wouldn't have yeah, come out when true. King was in high school, but that's about it. Yeah. He says someone's going to pee peace or uh, not pee, going <laughs> to barf pee soup. Yeah. But, but I think, I, I guess what I mean is like, you know, big substantive portions. They really do feel as, as you're saying, you know, like, like something a 17 year old uh, would write. What's interesting to me too, that I didn't think about while reading it, but, but as you're kind of talking about the structure of the novel, um, this is the same structure that gets reused later for the novella, the body, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, turns into stand by me. Mm -hmm. Um, But it too is, you know, kind of a big broad structure, you know, a a trip across a County basically that's used to tell several smaller stories Mm -hmm. uh, and really like humanize and kind of get down in a character. I mean, I think this is the only way that Stephen King can can conceptualize doing character work. He is not good at um, giving us characterization through plot. You know, he can either stop at a standstill and go deep in a character's psyche, or he can do rip-roaring plot. <laughs> he has never been very good. Even until today, he can't do both at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I think some of his long novels are extremely long is he just can't do both things. And so, you know, it is it really, really long because there are so many sections of that novel where we just, the plot grinds to a stop and we are going to listen to a character think for 25 pages mm-hmm. about their life or abuse that they have, have experienced or their family relationships or whatever. And 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 uh, to be clear, I don't really mean that as a criticism. I think that, that that's kind of like what works about Stephen King's stuff is there's never this kind of uh, easy breezy, you know, kind of, um, you know, Gone Girl-esque kind of writing where you're getting two things at once. Uh, he's he's multimodal and they don't go at the same time. <laughs> he's bimodal, <laughs> I guess is what I mean, uh, as far as as far as, um, you know, the way he writes the thing. But but there's that story. There are there's Irma. Uh, and it looks like in the uh, in in the notes here, Michael, you've made a connection between Irma and Carrie White. Can you can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, Irma is uh, I, I in the notes I call her a prefiguration of Carrie White. Irma is the girl in class who is like scandalized when the other students swear, um, and so she is an odd combination of like Carrie and Carrie's mom. Because she's got the same kind of you get the sense that she's a she's dowdy and she's religious or like she's she's got a more uh, mainstream or straightforward or conservative moral sense uh, than uh, than many of the other students. And so how I would describe her reaction to witnessing a school shooting, right, is scandalized that the other children are acting this badly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, we get um, 
kind of her story, like she, she, so she, this is, this is who she is, right? In kind of the ecology of this fictional high school, uh, this is who she is. Uh, and you, and she, you know, she's not popular with the boys. And so of course the confession we get from her is just this huge, like running monologue about how she wishes like boys would ask her out and that she would go on dates and so on and so forth. Because uh, her other thing, right, is thinking that all of the other girls who do go on dates uh, are, like, you know, just promiscuous and, like, the scum of the earth. Uh, and there's the one girl, is it, I don't know if it's Sandra or if it's, like, Carol. There's a, so two of the girls are Sandra and Carol. And it is very hard, again, to keep a lot of these characters separate. Not only because yes. their names are just like the most normal names, but because we get such thin characterization. Yeah, you, I, you, this, this, the kind of setup of the classroom is very much what we've talked about already in the other books where King is using kind of stock characters, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, there's like the kid who doesn't take care of himself. There is the conservative girl. There's the popular girl. There's the popular guy. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the misfit who is like doing the school shooting, right? But but as you're saying, the kind of walls. But I I think that that later in King's work, he gets very good at kind of drawing strong boundaries around those characters. Right here is their primary quality. Here's their secondary quality. That's all that you know about them. Right, mm-hmm. and so that's like what makes Salem's Lot work, for example. Right, the constable. Right, it, he uh, is the constable, and he's kind of shit at his job. The end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like no no more complication. But here he's really trying to have his his cake and eat it too, in the sense of like. He wants everyone to have an equally complex psychology, but but I think this is maybe a symptom of being 17 years old. He doesn't know how to distinguish these human beings from one another very much because they all kind of have the same background mm-hmm. <laughs> and same relationship to one another, right? Um, and so, you know, you're just you're you're getting different flavors of human being, but they're not strongly distinguished flavors. So um, I have so I have to read yeah, this. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> This is what I was trying to look for. It's not, it's Grace. It's not Carol. It's Grace, who is the other girl who uh, I was trying to think of, who she is a topic of conversation because her mom likes to drink, I think. And at the very least, her mom likes to go to the local bar or the roadhouses or whatever. And so Irma, when she gets going, uh, starts talking about like how awful Grace's mother is and how everyone knows she's just a tramp and blah, 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 blah. And then Grace ends up standing up for herself and her mother, right? Based shouting Irma down. Um, and Ir- she, she brings Irma to tears. Uh, Grace looked at the class, then looked at me. Her breasts were very full uh, under the soft fabric of her sweater. Again, that's a very like this, how this book is written. And this is uh, this, this line. My mother fucks, she said, and I love her. The applause started somewhere in the back, maybe with Mike Gaffin and Earl Kaskin, but it started and spread until they were all applauding, all but Ted and Susan Brooks. It's it's literally a slow clap, <laughs> like yeah. you know, like like you know, but, and you can see this is why you know I was thinking locked room kind of play, right? You can see this being staged on a stage, right? Like. straight up soliloquy moment that ends with my mother fucks uh and (laughs) And i I love her her. right and and i love her you know and look i i would be lying if i said that it doesn't work in the novel (laughs) like you're like okay cool yeah that works uh you know uh, like 
you're you're complicated. You got a lot going on in your life. Uh-huh. <laughs> um but yeah, that I think that's very kind of emblematic of of a lot of this novel. Um and a huge chunk of it, right, is geared toward like using all of this as a weapon against this Ted kid. Yeah, Ted Jones. Um, who, Ted Jones, who who um uh, uh Charlie really doesn't like. And Ted Jones is just like, uh, you know, um uh, I think he played he plays basketball, I think, and then quit or football. He's he's an athlete. And yeah. He quit earlier in the season, but he still remained effortlessly cool and kind of lost no social capital from it. And he dates uh, uh, Sandra, who Charlie really likes and never got to date. Um, and so, uh, you know, all of this is kind of stewing. Ted keeps standing up and trying and thinking about disarming Charlie, and Charlie keeps having to threaten to shoot him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, obviously this book is building toward a climax in which something happens with Ted and also there's cops everywhere outside. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like there is like, yeah, throughout this entire thing, right. More and more like police, uh, are, are, you know, congregating outside and there's this police sniper and maybe we'll talk about that. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, uh, the other thing about Ted, uh, yeah, it was uh, the football team that he quit, like very mysteriously, right? Ted is like the stereotypical, like all American high school jock, as it is imagined uh, in this period or by someone of Stephen King's generation. But the other point worth worth noting is that he also uh, wears his hair combed into uh, what Stephen King always calls a duck's ass, uh, the greaser uh, hairstyle. So... Ted is both like the the all American jock, but also this other version of the evil greaser character, um, oh. and and also like is apparently wearing his hair like a greaser. In th- this book is ostensibly set in you know like nineteen seventy six or seventy seven or something. Um, so one of those weird things where Stephen King rewrites it, but doesn't stop to think like, does this would this make any sense? And also just to touch on something you were saying where Stephen King was talking in, in the guns essay, right? That there is a, a kind of truth to this novel, uh, that he felt like, uh, he, he explains in the essay. Well, essentially what he says is, you know, like I was pretty badly bullied. Um, he doesn't get into specifics, mm-hmm. uh, but that is, that is the claim. And he says the only thing that really saved him in high school was having what he calls, uh, like a, a sophomoric wit, uh, which is very much like, that's that's Charlie Decker, right? That's the narrator of this novel. Uh, yeah. But also, it just makes me wonder, like, who with a greaser hairstyle really wrecked Stephen King's life? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, because all these characters are people he knows 100 uh-huh. percent. You know, this is a self insert character, as you're saying. Uh, this is a, a very relatable situation in the sense that, like, obviously, this kind of place exists. Um, yeah, it's I the it's it's the fantasy here is is just frankly disturbing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, without doing it. But yeah, absolutely. I, I uh, you know if you're listening and you believe that you're the person that Stephen King wrote about 50 years ago about being bullied, uh, please let us know. Uh-huh. But yeah, so the, you know it kind of builds. There are a few other stories here. He makes uh, Irma. I, is it Irma and Grace fight each other? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, he draws like a like a five foot circle on the ground and makes them slap each other in the face while insulting one another. Yes, uh, it's it's and it's just like yet another one of these little scenarios. And this is some monologuing happens there. 
Um, and he's kind of constantly talking to the police. They're buzzing in and he's goofing on them and, and outwitting them. Uh, there's a long, very painful segment of the book where he is like telling a guy that he's going to kill someone if, if the hostage negotiator asks any questions. And so the guy's not asking any questions. He like gets him to quote the Bible and the quote is a question. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, God. Uh, and you know, it's just, it's this fantasy of like Charlie completely owning an adult man in a, in a mind game. Mm-hmm. Unbearable, terrible. Um, <sighs> but it builds to, uh, Ted telling the story and Sandra telling the story. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, should we pause and talk a little bit about Charlie? Mm-hmm. Cause, uh, Charlie is not actually totally empty. Charlie has what I think the novel wants us to regard as, as something like psychology, <laughs> Yeah, and I guess it, I guess maybe that's that's unfair too. It actually ends with Sandra and Ted and Charlie all telling stories, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's where we get a lot of that. So I mean, up to that point, we learn Charlie's got an abusive father. He like tells a story about going on a hunting trip, and his father talking about cutting his mother's nose off or just cutting her nose. I, I this this might be a regionalism or a conceptual thing that's just like too far afield for me. But basically. Uh, if if uh, his wife ever cheated on him, he would you know cut her nose and disfigure her in a way, mm-hmm. um, you know this kind of horrible horrible thing. And so Charlie really fixates on that and and thinks about it quite a bit. Uh, his father's like thrown him around a bit and beaten him up and then lied about it before. So he's got a lot going on as far as like powerlessness and feelings of violence uh, toward him in the world. Um, but that's kind of all we know until the very end, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's sort of. Um uh, that's sort of where I think the the novel at the very beginning, at least like that, that, that story about the hunting trip is like the first thing that Charlie tells us about himself. That is not like what is actually happening in, in the, the, the real time plot. So that structures kind of our understanding. And then we get, you know, like you said, that we get a couple of other stories about Charlie and kind of how his, his dad is basically a huge piece of crap, like massively huge. Uh, and it all orbits around, it, it's all deeply edible and deeply Freudian in just the most patent terms, right? It is uh, Charlie uh, feeling uh sort of uh like he's constantly at war with his father his mother is kinder to him uh his mother supports him in ways that his father does not and he like is fixated on this idea that his father hurts his mother Mm -hmm. um and and that's kind of like the 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 driving mechanism for his psychology for uh most of uh the novel right up until the end when we get charlie's final story and then and then ted and and uh the other yeah, and can you, I, I'm having trouble remembering what Ted's story is even about. Can you fill that one in? Uh, yeah, so Ted, Ted is actually the one who it turns out his mother is an alcoholic. Oh, that's right. And that's why he had to quit the football team, because his mother went into uh, rehab, and he had to help out around the house, essentially. And so this like introduces a crack into the perfect all-American life, and it's something that he struggles to keep hidden. And then he doesn't because uh, everyone's telling stories in school instead of out of school, I guess. How long have you been sitting on that? Uh, it just came to me, right? It's the it's oh. the 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 lightning, the genius of of Stephen <laughs> oh, King. Yeah, yeah, the spring of genius uh-huh. out of out of your head. Um, well, the most exciting story, and I, I say that in a thousand different ways. 
The most exciting story is Sandra's story, mm-hmm. who is set up to be, you know, the the perfect all American, uh, you know, girl. She is, you know, just to to you know lay it on. She's Susan Norton, a hundred percent. She's Sue Snell, right? Like she is a Stephen King, one of the few Stephen King characters that is un unaltered, basically from. You know, his his <laughs> writings, his sophomore year, junior year of high school, all the way up until the year 2020. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of a, a powerful amount of, of sustained, sustained attention, I think. <laughs> oh, yes. But what's her story about? Well, so it's a penthouse letter, uh-huh. <laughs> Michael. And um, like the most depressing penthouse letter possible. Yeah, it's not, I don't think, uh, so if people don't know what penthouse letters are, uh, they were a thing, I guess still are a thing, I don't really know, but they're they're kind of this confessional genre, right, where someone writes in and then tells about some sort of wild, you know, sexual experience or sexual story that they have. Um, you know, they're all fake, they're all, you know, they're mm-hmm. written things, but they're written in such a way as to, you know, to be like, they, they really happened to me. Right, it's like, it's a, it's a form of erotica, right, erotic writing. Um, yeah. So um, and so, you know, that was kind of, you know, the printed alongside uh, pornography, right? Visual pornography, photo, uh, pornographic images um, in the same kinds of magazines that Stephen King would be also publishing short stories in. Like, you mm-hmm. know, so Cavalier, that kind of thing. And I guess when we get to oh, I mean, when we get to Night Shift. So the next book that we're going to be doing, we're going to talk, uh, I'm assuming in that episode, a bit about where Stephen King is publishing short mm-hmm. fiction uh, at this time and, and before. But um, so, so Sandra tells a story about going to like a roller rink mm-hmm. with Ted. Yes. Cause that was another thing that happened is because they're both all American, they were both dating and then suddenly they mysteriously broke up. Right. That's the other sort of like crack in Ted's armor. They go to the roller rink and there's some like greasers getting rowdy, right? <laughs> yep. Like dudes are getting too rowdy at the roller rink. And uh, one guy zips by them and Ted reaches out and like bops them on the back of the head. And the guy's like sassing them as he goes by, right? So something rude to him. And Ted bops him and then chases him down basically and like knocks him down and kind of roughs him up a little bit and rips his jacket, which is like Mm -hmm. a, you know, a real jackass thing to do. And then they like, Ted kind of just kind of beats him up in the middle of the roller rink, it sounds like, Mm -hmm. or, you know, the way it's told. And then they run and get in the car and they drive away and then they go have sex in like, you know, uh, uh, like a, like a rock quarry or something. Yeah. Uh, it's a real rural main story. Cut to, uh, sometime later. Yeah. Sandra really enjoyed that experience. You know, there's something risky and dangerous about it. And so she then tells a story where she goes back to the roller rink without Ted She's wearing like real fetching clothing, right? Dressing real sexy, got a real short skirt, all this kind of stuff. She goes and picks up just some random dude who's like covered in pizza grease. Yeah. Yeah, that's how he's described. <laughs> yeah. And you get the sense that Stephen King, I, I'm not going to say that this is like, um, I don't think that this is like, uh, uh, like Stephen King writing fetish fiction or anything, but he's going for a vibe here, right? This is a this is like a fantasy of like the unsullied woman being with the dirtiest mm-hmm. human being possible, right? Mm-hmm. So he's covered in grease. He's jittery. He's not like nice at all. And she he like takes her back to to his car and they have sex and they have sex in like 
weird detail in Stephen King ways that we will really get to start seeing show up in like the stand in some later books talking about like the exact operations of his penis, Uh for example, just some real it's, it's, um, uh, uh, in, in the trailer park boys way, real greasy, (laughs) (laughs) not just in the Stephen King way. Um, and, and so, you know, and Ted this whole time while she's telling the story, is just like, you know, jaw open, surprised whatever um right and oh and she talks about how she has an orgasm immediately and she didn't have it with ted right that was the real thing is that she didn't really enjoy it with ted she enjoyed sort of the the atmosphere or the danger but she didn't care a whole lot about sex itself and so she decided she was like basically Mm -hmm. like let's try it again and see what happens is is her logic i guess yeah with more danger let's double Uh down on this danger um, and so, you know, I wrote you this message, uh, I think yesterday when I was reading this book, but Sandra is 100% just Daisy from the great Gatsby, like a mm-hmm. hundred, like her, her tone, the way she talks, the way she thinks, you know, her kind of like wide eyed innocence. Cause at the end of the story, she's like, well, why can't I do these things? It would be good to do these things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, but it's like, what if Daisy was like, the a 17 year old's like fantasy of a sex freak like mm-hmm. you know an absolutely off the wall like cannot be handled kind of person um mm. and uh and that's the story it like doesn't go anywhere after that it's it, this story is just here to be titillating i think mm-hmm. um and and that's about it it's weird it's a weird thing yeah uh and sort of in the intervening time uh the the cops have tried to kill Charlie. Uh, they had a sniper uh, and the sniper fired a bullet. And then in a move that is just so painfully obvious, it hits the padlock that Charlie had put in his pocket uh, earlier in the novel. Cause he takes his padlock off of his locker and throws it away. And then he has this moment where he looks at his padlock in the trash at the very beginning of the novel. And then he's like, I'm going to keep that. And then he picks it up and puts it in his pocket. And it's like, all right, that's going to block a bullet later. And it does. It, it like it, and it hits him. The bullet hits him so hard. I mean, obviously, it's a bullet, but it like smashes a hole into his chest. <laughs> uh, I, I don't really get a good sense that Stephen King has like an idea of what. <laughs> like force is but um what's interesting about the sniper shooting him is that's the closest to like a salem's lot kind of thing that we get um you know like it's still charlie telling the story you know kind of post hoc telling the story but he like describes the guy showing up and then getting the rifle Mm -hmm. and driving Mm -hmm. to like uh you know shooting range somewhere else and then test firing it and then coming back and laying in the shadows and all kinds of stuff like that so um, you know, it's interesting kind of, I, I think, writing here. Um, and then is it after that that he tells his own story? I think, yeah, I think it's after that that we get uh, the the story, like Charlie's final story. Uh, he uh, tried to have sex and couldn't. Yep. I mean, that's really, I don't want to be uncharitable to what happens in the novel, but tells a very long setup story about like going and seeing what I would consider to be like a very stereotypical 1960s, like free love kind of girl. I mean, I think that's uh-huh. the, the image and the fantasy that we're supposed to be getting here. And she wants to have sex with him. And he is, uh, I'm not going to read this because it's just too embarrassing for anyone to read on the planet earth. But he tells a very long story or, or I mean, it is a long story, but about 
how horny he is. And mm-hmm. he uses the word horny about 85 times. Mm-hmm. Um, I read one of the passages out loud to my wife, and I've never seen anyone have a, a like a more unhappy look on their face. Um, really, she really did not enjoy it at all. Uh, mm-hmm. Hearing hearing me narrate the Stephen King um, uh, section to her. But really, it's just at the end, he gets uh, the opportunity to have sex with this woman and he can't. Yep. Uh, He's disappointed. Just a little more elaboration, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, because here's the thing about this story is that it could be a short story. Like if you excised this from the novel, it would be a fine short story because it would be a short story about a stupid kid, uh, like encountering disappointment essentially, right? Like it would be kind of Mm -hmm. a textbook short story in, in that way. Uh, Mm -hmm. but it's like, uh, so Charlie has a friend named Joe McKennedy who we hear about constantly. It's actually one of the few things about the novel that I really like is that const- is that Charlie is like sort of always referring back to like, oh, and then Joe McKennedy would say this or Joe McKennedy. And, and so we know that he has this friend named Joe McKennedy. And when people are like gathering outside the school, he's like looking out the window trying to see if he can see Joe McKennedy. And Joe McKennedy does not show up as a character until this story because it's via Joe's like friend who's a freshman and in, in an English major also, right? Everyone's an English major, uh, that he meets when they go to the college campus. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they go there and then that's how they end up in this, uh, this situation where Charlie meets this girl who is interested in him. Uh, and specifically what happens is she says like, she, she, she seems interested in him. He is very interested in her. And she says, you know, like go outside, uh, go this far away from the house, like, go to such a place and wait for me and I'll be there. And he goes out there and he waits and he waits and he waits and she doesn't show up. And then, uh, basically by the time she does show up, he is so like embarrassed and, uh, upset that he cannot get an erection again. I point this out because this is the precise thing thing that happens in apt pupil when uh the one of the there's a character in in that book who becomes a murderer and he's a teenager in high school and he like be like him being able to uh, unable to sexually perform and becoming a murderer are things that are entwined at, at both points in in that novella in the future and also in this early novel Oh, I don't. I do not look forward to reading that pupil. I I really do not like that book. That's another unnecessarily yeah. cruel Stephen King book. Mm-hmm. And that's it's interesting. Uh, that was the thing that I wanted to mention at the beginning. Uh, one of the things to note about the Bachman books is that they tend to be crueler than your mainline King. Yeah, they're they're significantly kind of more bleak in vision, mm-hmm. um, and not always in a in a good way. Yeah. Um, you know. Well, speaking of, how does this end? Um, he uh, lets everyone go. Mm-hmm. Oh, I do like that. I mean, so well, he doesn't let everyone go. I guess there's one additional complication. Earlier in the novel, it's established that uh, these kids kind of want to be here. Uh, he lets Irma go to the bathroom, and she leaves and then just comes back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's there. there's this kind of, you know, um, I think, you know, reference to Stockholm Syndrome kind of thing going on here. Basically... Uh, uh, Charlie is so cool and is like owning the man so good that uh, that everyone kind of starts, I don't know, at least uh, entertaining some ideas and thoughts that he has. And 
uh, at the end of the book, basically, um, he sets Ted up and then everyone, uh, I don't know, does bad stuff to Ted. It's kind of unclear what exactly happens, but he lets everyone go and then they defoul Ted in some way. Yeah, uh, the... (laughs) I had I did not understand what happened to Ted until I read the the guns essay because their king says something like and then they like at the end of the book they beat up Ted and I was like that's what they were doing because it's so weirdly described yeah yeah and you get the sense it's almost like uh you know Stephen King gets much better at this, right, by saying you know and what happened then well I mean it's in Salem Slot right and that what happened then was unspeakable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, um, uh, he does, he's very good at that, you know, all through the rest of his career. So here he's going for that kind of vibe, but he is like, uh, I think maybe too afraid. He pulls his punch a little bit. And so what we get is just like, uh, Ted's being like hit with pencils and there's ink on him and stuff. And then like, he is reduced to like being unable to speak. He's, he's catatonic at the end of the, at the end of the novel. Yeah. Um, And it's also, uh, it's a, it's like he, he, he writes the the other students here in the way that he will later again in Salem's lot, write Much more effectively vampires, right? Because the students are described mm-hmm. as like pig pen, right? The kid who's always dirty, like is described as spider like. Cause he like, as they're beating up this, this guy, as they're beating up Ted, like pig pen runs up and just like bites his nose for some reason. And I guess the, the idea we're supposed to have is that in the same way that Charlie, uh, made Ted kind of the the focal point of all of his like oh and this is why I you know compared Charlie to Holden Caulfield right like all you phonies um, Holden Caulfield from Catcher in the Rye um, if that's not a reference that uh, is immediately available to you uh, but you know that that sort of adolescent uh, sense of like other people's inauthenticity. Uh, and sort of the inauthenticity mm-hmm. of the mainstream. And so Stephen King has all of these other students, like, they, they come around to Charlie's side, and they, too, also hate Ted. Yeah, and uh, they all get away. And so at the end, Michael, mm-hmm. doesn't Charlie get away with it? I, I mean, yeah. Because they all left? He's in their head, man. Yep, I'm just I'm I'm trying to be charitable to teenage Stephen King. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, what happens at the end is that uh, Charlie uh, kind of puts the gun down, and then a cop comes in, and then he Charlie pretends to grab the gun, and then gets shot three times, mm-hmm. and uh, then is committed, presumably for the rest of his life. Yes. Well, we get a preview of uh, what do you call it, um, Carrie here, and and Salem Slot, right? Because mm-hmm. we get these like formal documents at the very end. We get the uh, like the judge committing him. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get a, a letter that's being written by um, about Ted, how Ted's catacon- catatonic, and so uh, it's almost like it's an epistolary novel at the end. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh yeah, we get and we get like a letter from Joe McKennedy uh, to Charlie. Absolutely. So Joe McKennedy's real. Yeah, <laughs> you you might not think he's real <laughs> through a chunk of the novel. Um, but yeah, those are the main big moves that happened. Um, I didn't even pick out a favorite Kingism this time. Michael, what what did you, what'd you go with? I mean, (laughs) it was really hard not to make it, uh, my mom fucks and I love her. Um, (laughs) just cause that's not so much a Kingism as it is like, (laughs) like that's just, that's a, that's a one in a million lines you read in a novel. 
But actually, uh, what I wrote, like, like what I decided was my kingism was the way that Charlie at the beginning of the novel, when he opens up his locker and takes away the padlock and he like, and this is a very like Stephen King thing. Uh, he notes the brand of the padlock, which is uh, Titus, right? And he sort of starts uh, like talking to the padlock. Uh, weirdly enough, this is touching on what we were, what we talk about in the uh, the Shining bonus episode where uh, Stephen Weber has to talk to the jukebox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's, it is weirdly the same. Yeah. Right, this the, the, the Stephen King habit of having his characters like openly discuss or like openly address inanimate objects when they're alone. Uh, but yeah, so he he talks about uh, the the padlock uh, and it's a Titus padlock and he just calls it like Titus the friendly padlock. And I don't know, it Great. seems I'm, I'm not even like I, I, I can't even find the page that I wrote down now. Um, but that's it's just it's it is the the phrase like Titus the friendly padlock. Yeah, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, yeah. I, there's not a lot. There's as we've discussed already. There's a lot of kind of uh, resonance with Stephen King's work. I wouldn't say that any of Stephen King's style is in this book. Yeah, um, or very little of it is right. A lot of content, a lot of like approaches to situations and thinking about character types. Um, but not a lot of the style of his work. But at the same time, I mean, it's kind of impressive that from 17 years old to 70, uh, a, a consistent approach to character and and the construction of a novel. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's saying something. We got to talk about Uncle Stevie's mixtape. Mm-hmm. Quite a few songs in this whoop, one. Whoop. Yeah, there's a lot of songs in this one uh, because Bluegrass <laughs> makes you horny. This is the other, like... The the character note the other character note for Charlie I don't think we ever get another king protagonist uh, like this Charlie you might think uh, he's probably a rock guy you know classic rock guy like your Stephen King no Charlie loves bluegrass music uh, <laughs> yes. and that's uh, and, he's, and my and my reference is specifically to the fact that at one point he says you got to listen to this bluegrass record it it really makes you horny yeah no that's um. <laughs> I, I posted this on Twitter, so listeners might have might have been familiar with it. Uh, yeah, it's when he's going to the party and he meets like Joe McKennedy's friend who gives them he he, he gives them weed or something. Uh, and it's like mm-hmm. Jerry turned back to me. You ever heard of the Clinch Mountain Boys, which is a real bluegrass group, by the way? Um, I shook my head. Mm-hmm. Heard of them, though. You got to listen to this. He said, boy, is it horny. I do not know what that is intended to mean because I would never in a million years describe the Clinch Mountain Boys as horny. No, I wouldn't listen to the record. So they have like one record from the early 70s. And so I'm just kind of, you know, hoping that's about right. And I listen to it and and it's like it's like saying, you know what I love? You know what really gets me going as a person? The uh, the Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack. <laughs> I just... It's it's unbelievable, bro. It's like what what is going on in your mind, Stephen King? Yep. Um, but uh, but we do have some songs selected here, uh, Michael. What's the first one? Well, it's uh, it's it's the song that um, Charlie says they'll be playing uh, when they like drive him to jail or something early in the novel. Uh, it is this is a little uh, confusing um, because in the book Charlie calls it. Uh, the Darktown Strutters banjo rag, suggesting that he that there is a music group called the Darktown Strutters that recorded a song called Banjo Rag, but 
in looking into this and trying to find out exactly what is being referenced here, Darktown Strutter is a song. It is a, a popular bluegrass hmm. staple that is a type of song, a banjo rag, right? It's just, it's like a, a banjo instrumental. Um, and it's like, it's it's a fun, like it's very um, ragtime. It, it's like bluegrass edging hmm. toward ragtime in kind of its uh, uh, instrumentation and, and tempo and tone. Uh, it's a fun, it's a fun little song. It is not exactly the sort of thing that I would think would lend like, I don't know, an air of psychological realism or emotional stakes to uh, my characterization of a school shooter. But, okay. It's five stars, actually. I like it. Uh, I, I listened to Chuck Berry's Sweet Little Rock and Roller. Um, it, it sounds like literally every Chuck Berry song, one, one star. Uh... The next one I listened to, uh, this was this was another one I had to do research on because King misspells their name in the book. Uh, it's the Adrisi <laughs> brothers, and he spells it like A D R E I Z E I or something. But no, it's just A D D R I S I. The Adrisi brothers. Um, this is a song called "We've Got to Get It On Again." Uh, a thing I haven't mentioned up until this <laughs> point is that this novel. This is a true Stephen King. The original title for this novel was uh, Getting It On. So the man loves to pick titles that sound like they're going to be porno pornography, um, just like yes. Second Coming in Salem's Lot. Uh, and this is also like, for whatever reason, this is what Charlie refers to. Uh, like, this is how Charlie refers to, like, his his violence and his terror. He's like, it's time to get it on. Um, so anyway, the, this is all to say the Adrisi brothers, we've got to get it on again is amazing. I love this song. It is like this seventies folk rock that is melded with like the emerging adult contemporary sound. And the, the entire song is about how the speaker and his lover need to work harder at having sex. Wow. So it literally, we've got, we've got to, we've got to get it on again. It's very, yeah, I, 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 I know I've read so many things out loud on, on this episode, <laughs> but I have to read you these lyrics. We, okay. We never laugh. We used to know so many happy songs. We never kiss in the penetrating way that used to turn me on. Once there were <laughs> fires in our lives, silver sparks that used to fly, we've got to get it on again, work it out together, learn to love again, we've got to make a try. <laughs> that is wild. Uh, yeah, that, it's, it is exact, like, the title is exactly what the song is about, and it's, like, that is the entire conceit, is just, we have to try harder to have sex. <laughs> Um, and I, I love this song. I will give it four stars, right? It, it like the irony almost like my irony enjoyment of it almost kicks it up to five, but I'll give it four stars because it is such a weird encapsulation of like a cultural like moment. Well, I'm going to take us out with three reviews right. from worst to best. Okay? okay. Worst one star, the Rolling Stones hot stuff. This is probably the worst Rolling Stones song. Hmm. It is terrible. I don't disagree. It is truly bad. Yeah. I I don't care for it. It's not as bad as Bob Dylan, but it's close. <laughs> uh, three stars. The Beatles, The Ballad of John and Yoko. It, it's just, it's the Beatles doing their honky-tonk mm -hmm. thing. It's good. It's fine. 
you know, it's if if you know I had to listen to it for the rest of my life every now and again, I'd be fine with that. Five stars. Bobby Sherman, Hey Mr. Sun. <laughs> Have you heard this song before? Um, I I did not listen to this one, no. It, you should listen to okay. it. Everyone should give this bad boy a listen. I, I literally, as you can see in the notes, Michael, I wrote, there are no words to describe this yeah. song. It's about a man talking to the sun, okay? Uh-huh. And the most, like, bombastic... I don't know. Funk groove is happening in the background. <laughs> I don't. I, I can't describe what. I don't have the the music language to, to describe what's happening here. Um, but five stars, good stuff. Uh, I wish that we had more of this and less Bob Dylan in the thing. His taste really changed. I will say yeah. that. You know, and, and maybe this is just a note, kind of pin at the end here. Was Stephen King on a huge amount of cocaine in 1977, or did that come later? So I, you know, there's the the the. History is not a precise science, um, but uh-huh. but I would say uh, I think King himself dates his co- cocaine years uh, seventy eight through eighty six. Okay, so we're right there. And I, he said in the commentary for The Shining, Stephen King's The Shining, that we did our bonus episode on. To plug that one more time, uh, he says in that that when he was writing The Shining, he was not he was only drinking heavily. He was not doing cocaine. Mm-hmm. So that that makes that that lines up with his. Uh, um, what he said recently too. So, okay. Yeah. So, so, you know, I was just trying to get a sense of, you know, how did he bang out these revisions? <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't want to imagine what the version of this novel looks like where he does a full rewrite, um, in, in that particular era of his life. Uh, we're, well, we're gonna, we're, we're right on the edge. We're right on the edge of Stephen King's cocaine years. Uh, we will talk about that. I guess not in the next episode, but in the one after that, mm-hmm. uh, in a couple episodes, we because there's no way you can talk about Stephen King. We've already talked a little bit about his his uh, alcohol use uh, around The Shining, but we will pretty quickly move into the unavoidable discussion of him both drinking extremely heavily and doing a Herculean amount of cocaine. Mm-hmm. Until then, uh, where can they find you, Cameron? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at C Kunzelman. And you can find me on Twitter at Warren is Dead. Uh, you can find out more information about Range Touch on Twitter by following us there uh, at Range Touch. Uh, you can also find videos that we do, uh, let's plays, uh, stream archives. Right now, Danny is uh, doing putting up videos of uh, his Crusader Kings three. Uh, stream that he's been doing. Uh, Cameron and I are mm-hmm. also working on a let's play of Elsinore, uh, the video game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you want to. Us in any of these endeavors or get access to the special bonus episodes uh, that we do for Just King Things, uh, you can kick us uh, a little bit of money on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash range touch. At the $5 level, you'll get the Just King Things bonus episodes where Cameron and I talk about uh, a Stephen King film adaptation that we have watched. Uh, so far, we have watched the 2013 remake of Carrie, uh, Return to Salem's Lot, uh, the basically unconnected Salem's Lot sequel, and uh, most recently, the the episode that will be coming out, I think, in, in uh, relation to this particular podcast, the 1997 uh, miniseries version of The Shining, or Stephen King's The Shining, as it is officially known. Hey folks, Michael here. Just one other thing that I wanted to plug that hadn't been announced at the time of recording. 
If you're listening to this and you like scary stories even when they're not written by Stephen King, you should check out the horror anthology game The Silence Under Your Bed, which you can find right now if you go to bravemule.itch.io. The game currently features a great selection of eerie tales by writers Kevin Snow and Cassandra Coe, and on the night before Halloween of this year, it will receive an update featuring nine new stories by me, Michael Lutz. And that's in addition to the excellent music and sound design by Priscilla Snow and original art by Trevor Henderson. You can find out more by heading to bravemule.itch.io. Thanks, and happy Halloween. And so if you if you are listening to this this very moment, you can go over to patreon.com slash range touch, and that episode will be waiting on you there if you support us at $5 a month. So uh, if you want to hear more, if you're if you heard this and it's the first episode you heard, Number one, apologies. I'm sorry. This is a bad one to start <laughs> with. You had to, yeah, bad one to start with. The other episode's much better, and the books are much better. But uh, if you're hankering for more, um, that that is over there on Patreon right this very moment. What's our? Oh, and you'll if you if you listen to that bonus episode, you'll know the origin of our new outro. What is that, Cameron? Oh God, I forgot. <laughs> what did we decide on? Uh, well, uh, we're <laughs> do it for the world. And do it for Steve. <laughs> See you later on Just King Things. Uh, I completely forgot. <laughs> I jettisoned that from my brain. <laughs> <laughs>